You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leif Dahlin from Physician on Fire, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Steven Twitch Boss was an American freestyle hip-hop dancer, choreographer, actor, television producer, and television personality. In 2008, he finished in second place on the American version of So You Think You Can Dance. From 2014 to May 2022, he was featured on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. The man who seemed to have it all, a glowing smile, an electric personality, wealth, acclaim, and a loving family, took his own life on December 13th of this year, leaving many of us to ask... Why? But not only that, but how can we in our own lives avoid such a fate? Look, none of us right now listening probably knew Twitch personally or what struggles he had to face on a daily basis. But if wealth, success, and an adoring family don't add up to enough, then what's the purpose of all this? Why spend all this time talking about money and financial independence in the first place? Leif Dahlin is an early retired anesthesiologist and leading voice in the personal finance and financial independence worlds. His blog, Physician on Fire, chronicles his beliefs and teachings about good money management, as well as four years of early retirement. Just a reminder that today we are discussing sensitive issues of mental health and suicide. If those are triggering topics to you, you may want to move on to a different episode. Also, if you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please get help. An easy way is to contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just dial or text the number 988. Leif Dahlin, my friend, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I want to jump in on the deep end here. I'm not talking about statistics or studies, but tell me, do you think money can buy happiness? To an extent, it can buy the things that make us happier. I think that's maybe a a cheap answer, but the short answer is no. You hand someone money that won't make them happy, uh, but it does buy comfort. It does put a roof over our heads. It allows us to do uh, things with friends and family, travel, go out to dinners, etc. cetera. Uh, there's a relationship. It starts to fail at a certain point and above a certain level of wealth or income your your gains and happiness are marginal at best. Uh, again, you said we're not talking about studies. I'm sort of referring to one there. Uh, but I'm also referring to uh, my experience, what I've seen, what I've been through myself. And uh, I, I think uh, that there is a very loose correlation once you have enough to be comfortable and to uh, you know lead a, a typical uh, American life. In the introduction, I mentioned Twitch. It wasn't just money, right? It was success. He seemed to have a great family life. I mean, this was someone people looked up to. First and foremost, were you familiar with Twitch before this whole thing came out on the news? Had you ever watched So You Think You Can Dance or seen him on Ellen? Uh, I'll be honest. um, Neither Ellen nor So You Think You Can Dance are on my uh, DVR and I was not familiar with him specifically. I read about him after the fact. I watch more, you know, like football. And, you know, one thing that I thought about when Twitch died by suicide were these star NFL players like 
Junior Seau, who had an amazing career in college and in the NFL, one of the best to play the position of linebacker ever, made tens of millions of dollars, had millions of adoring fans, and ended his own life. Uh, I think he was in his 40s. And he, of course, shot himself, if if you remember the story, in the chest so that his, his brain could be studied because he knew, and we now know that suicide is often the action of a diseased brain, right? A brain that's not functioning properly, an organ that is not operating as it should. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's really remarkable and difficult to, to know that you can have everything that you strive for in life and still not want to live it. That's, uh, that's a pretty scary thought. You know, it's an interesting question because I'm listening to you and you mentioned this idea of Junior Seau wanted his brain preserved so it could be studied. This idea that there is an abnormal or diseased brain. But I want to pull that back a moment and let's talk about that because I wonder if this is not necessarily in some senses an abnormal phenomena, but a normal one. I mean, I experienced this in a sense when I was burning out of medicine and I discovered financial independence. I've told this story often how when I realized I was financially independent, instead of being excited, which I should have been, right, because I had all the money I needed. I had a great family life. I had friends. I pretty much had success. I had things that I should have wanted it actually sent me into a panic or a little bit of a depression. So I'm wondering if you've ever experienced something like that, where people would have looked at your life and said, boy, that leaf, he's now at a place. He should be so psyched and happy. But internally, you were like, this doesn't feel as good as I thought it would. You know, I think I think you and I are, are similar in that we have been serial goal achievers, right? We achieve goals. We, we set them. We set out to get them. And then we... And once we have it, then you, you you kind of need another goal to to have that purpose, to have that drive, and uh, to have that reason to get up and perform every day. And so, yeah, once you didn't have that, I'm sure it was a challenge. Uh, Michael Phelps is another athlete that was you know the the best in his field, and he's talked about how he contemplated suicide after winning how many gold medals i don't know more than 10 uh and and being obviously the most famous swimmer of our generation uh but once you take away the ability to achieve something and he's been at the pinnacle well there's no really no higher pinnacle than than what he did at least in the sport of swimming have i personally experienced that not so much but by the time i realized i was financially independent and then retired from medicine. Then I had started an online business and I've been working at that. And so once I move on from that, I'm sure I'll have different goals and different things to keep me occupied. Uh, and I know that's important because I know myself. And, uh, you know, I think my wife worries a little bit about you know, <laughs> what I'll do with all kinds of free time because what will be next? Because there will be something. But yeah, no, I haven't necessarily felt the same kind of dread anxiety that you did uh, when you realized you were FI. I was pretty excited about it. And, you know, we've been doing the things that I dreamed of doing with with travel, like we were just talking about uh, before the show. And so, yeah, that's 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 where I'm at. You mentioned Michael Phelps, and it makes me think a lot about goals, right? And especially goals that have a distinct ending or ending point. I wonder sometimes if actually getting to those goals makes us happier. And I have a joke with my family. I always tell my kids, uh, may you never reach your dreams, yet hopefully you'll get 80 to 90% there. And this idea that getting to this great audacious goal sometimes doesn't feel nearly as good as being invested in the climb and feeling you're making your headway I wonder sometimes if we focus too much on goals as opposed to the process of getting to the places we want to be. Oh, I think you're definitely right. There is a certain joy in making that progress in seeing yourself improve. I like, for example, I ran a marathon for the first time in uh, October, just a couple months ago. And I did enjoy that process of, of getting more fit, running more, easily and 
the the daily, you know, it was four or five runs a week for several months that I uh, went on to train. And then I ran the 26.2. I was very happy with my time. And I've run once since then. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, we did start traveling right away uh, after that. And it wasn't, I wasn't in a place where it was really conducive to running, but I could have made it happen. And I I didn't didn't really want to, but now I think I kind of missed that, that training, that daily routine of uh, getting my exercise in. And with the new year's coming up, we're recording just before Christmas. Uh, This may come out after, but uh, I know I'll get back into a a more regular exercise uh, routine uh, as far as cardio goes. Compare the process of getting to financial independence to running the marathon. Let's talk about those early days. If I remember your story correctly, you were studying for boards and started feeling maybe a touch of fatigue, burnout. Boy, do I want to keep doing this kind of thing. And you started looking into financial independence. Tell us about that process of discovering financial independence. And did it kind of solve the problems you thought it would solve? I would say largely it has. Uh, The problems, I guess, if we'll want to call them that, uh, when you're working full-time, or part-time as an anesthesiologist, uh, you need to be in one place. You need to be in the hospital at the bedside, at the head of the bed, ready to intubate and place lines and and uh, do what needs to be done to get this patient through surgery. You're at the beck and call of every surgeon that uh, can work in the OR, uh, basically every nurse that works in pre-op or post-op or takes care of surgical patients on the floor. Uh, you know, you're you're responding to everyone else's needs and, you know, not your own so much. Of course, that's why they pay you to do the job. And then you need to live near that hospital. By achieving financial independence and retiring from medicine, well, now we have the autonomy to uh, live anywhere we want in the world, to travel to anywhere we want in the world. My children, I have two boys, they're now 12 and 14. We have been able to take them to... Uh, so many places, uh, immerse them in different cultures and let them see, you know, many of the wonders of the world, things that I didn't begin to do until I was much older than they are now. And a lot of what we're seeing, they're seeing for the first time, I'm seeing for the first time too. You've mentioned, and we've talked about some of the highs of financial independence, the ability to go and take these trips and do things that you weren't able to do as a kid and have your kids along with you. Have there been any lows? Hmm. I feel like I'd be lying if I said no. (laughs) Um, But no, I think probably my biggest struggle right now uh is is still a lack of time because i did start an online business and and in anesthesia i had a good amount of time off post call days generally a week off most months and as someone with an online business i haven't had a week off in nearly seven years since i started it right not completely now my work weeks quote unquote are much different than they used to be uh, but having uh, a blog and Facebook groups and the social media and all of these things, as you know, um, there's always something you can work on. And since we're both goal setters and achievers, we're going to do that work, uh, even if it doesn't, you know, quote unquote, have to be done. It's something that we choose to do, we want to do, and we continue to do, uh, even if that means not taking a, a break completely for many years. Yeah, I connect with that, especially doing a podcast. Um, You work on things, your work no longer really conforms to a seven-day work week or even a day-night work week. There are always things to do, which means at Saturday night at 10 o'clock when everyone's watching TV, you might be sitting there on the computer working on it. But you may be available at 9 a.m. on Monday while everyone else is doing their schoolwork or what have you. Um, let Let me reach to what I know about you. Talk about the pandemic, because I feel like for you, that might have been a low when you had all these plans of traveling and vacations and trips and places you wanted to go. And all of a sudden, the world put some restrictions on you you didn't expect. 
you nailed it. I knew I was lying and I just couldn't <laughs> quite pinpoint what I was lying about. But yeah, we had some uh, great travel plans to go to, well, a cruise ship that took us to Shanghai, China was going to be the start of about a six or seven month trip that would ultimately take us throughout Southeast Asia, perhaps Australia, New Zealand. And that all got canceled, obviously. And so we had bought a, a small small house to live in while we were trying to find a suitable lake home, like one that we could live in for a long, long time. And uh, this small home ended up being our primary home for a year and a half, two years. Uh, but it was it was tight when we were in you know lockdown, right? And didn't didn't have uh, restaurants to go to, and, and even domestic travel was kind of a no no there for a while. That was a low point in that we were not able to do what we had expected to do, and yeah, that was frustrating more than anything. Now I know that compared to the physicians working, caring for these patients, dressing up in all kinds of PPE, and not knowing what danger they were putting themselves in and their own families. Well, I had it awfully easy, right? So I'm not going to complain and say, oh, it was devastating. Yeah, it was frustrating. You know, and I, I felt, I still felt guilty to the point where I offered to go back and work with my old group if, uh, if they needed help, if they were overwhelmed with, uh, you know, patients needing to be intubated and cared for in the PACU or, uh, you know, or, or if, or if, the doctors themselves were getting sick and they didn't have enough anesthesiologists. Now, none of that came to fruition uh, where I used to work, but I, I did feel like, gosh, maybe there's something I, I could or should be doing. We talk in our community a lot about the hedonic treadmill, this idea that when you spend money for things, it initially feels good. It gives you a hit of dopamine, but eventually your happiness goes kind of back to a baseline and so that people keep on buying things thinking that they're going to be getting those highs, but those highs don't last very long. The hedonic treadmill is really, it's a version of hedonic adaption, right? This idea that human beings, whether good or bad things happen to them, tend to return to a baseline of happiness. And I'm wondering if you found that in your post-retirement, post-financial independence life, initially when most people realize they're financially independent or when they retire, it gives them a boost, makes you feel excited and you're happy and this is living your best life. Did you yourself experience any of that hedonic adaption as, as time went on? Did you find that you kind of fell back to the baseline of how things were before retirement? Or did you find that you got a consistent boost from this lifestyle change? Honestly, I feel I've gotten a consistent boost. I mean, every morning when I wake up without an alarm clock, which is almost every morning, unless we have a flight to catch, I, I feel you know lucky and I, you know, pinch myself and remind myself that this is the life I get to live now. And so I, I think that uh, surprisingly, perhaps, I have not necessarily uh, felt like I've returned to that baseline. I think my baseline is set fairly high. You know, I think I'm fairly lucky genetically that I'm a pretty happy person. And in terms of material possessions and, uh, you know, luxury type experiences, I haven't really sought them out as much as maybe some of my peers have. And I think it's because I've, I've been pretty happy, you know, all along with, with or without those, those things. And so, you know, I mean, we've, we've had nice homes, we've taken amazing trips and I, I do enjoy finer things, but I don't feel like I need them to be happy and I'm not upset without them. There's certainly a, a bit of a life skill and an advantage to being content without the best of the best without the finest of all things, right? Um, if you need a five-star hotel to be comfortable and happy, you're you're going to have a tough life because sometimes you'll be in a 3.5-star hotel. Mm -hmm. And why would you be unhappy? That, that, that's, uh, you know, that's a maladaptive uh, sort of um, philosophy or, or, you know, state of mind. So I think my set point always has been pretty high. I've been a pretty happy person. And and uh, I'd say it's only gotten better in the last few years. You know, it's funny because I would probably say the same thing about myself. In a sense, I was a pretty happy guy when I was a busy physician. There were things that I didn't like and I got burned out. <clears throat> people, you know, if you were to ask the people who knew me, they'd say, hey, Jordan's a pretty happy guy. 
On the other hand, once I started living a different life where I was more connected to who I thought I was, and this is kind of a more of a post-medicine life, um, I found that my level of happiness went higher. And I'm wondering if that's kind of the crux of the conversation we're having today. Like if you look at the data, right? And I, I forget, is it Kahneman and Tversky? I forgot who did the study in which they took people who won the lottery and then they took people who had a debilitating car accident where they were paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, they found that years after winning the lottery, you fell back to a baseline of happiness. But interestingly enough, years after becoming paralyzed, people actually went from being more sad and depressed and would go back to their baseline. When we talk about people like Twitch or Junior Seau or those type of people, I feel like what we're saying is these people were victims of hedonic adaption. Maybe they weren't happy in the first place or who knows, maybe they had some dysphoria they went and achieved all these wonderful things that should have brought them to a higher level and yet eventually fell down back to their baseline level, which was not happy. And it ended up in mm-hmm. these bad outcomes. On the other hand, when we talk, we're talking about our experiences where for whatever reasons we didn't hedonically adapt. In fact, in a sense, we found that these changes in our lives made us more consistently happy And I'm wondering if there's a secret. I I mean, I don't expect there to be an easy answer here, but why do some of us become victims in this case of hedonic adaption and return to a baseline that isn't as good or happy, maybe as depressed, whereas other people strive towards these things, reach certain goals, and actually meet a higher baseline? Yeah, that's that's tricky. There's a lot there. Um, I think we have to be a little bit careful when it's talking specifically about those who have chosen suicide because that's not really happy versus not happy you know that that's that's a you know typically a clinical depression and and a, and a diseased mind you know like like i kind of referred to earlier uh, an organ that's just not functioning the way it ought to and you know you look at these people and and you know how could they make that choice it's like well no it's not a logical choice it's really not necessarily a choice at all it is uh the outcome from a a uh you know a brain if you want to call it a chemical chemical imbalance or whatever it may be a lack of dopamine and serotonin that uh leads someone to not want to um you know stay stay with us you know in that study too that you mentioned i, th- I think it was a matter of months even or maybe 12 or 18 months at the most where those people returned to baseline which is kind of remarkable and very surprising. I think we can kind of look at, you know, you and I specifically, well, we were both physicians, right? And we don't necessarily have the autonomy that we would like over our lives and even our professional careers and uh, and the role that we play. And so you and I gained a lot of autonomy when we left, when, well, when I left medicine and you scaled back, you know, 80% or more from uh, the amount of work you used to do. And so I think, uh, you know, that is a, a very important uh, determining factor in contentment and happiness is, is having a sense of control and actual control over how you live your life and how you spend your time. I'm interested in that dichotomy that you're pointing to. And it's a difficult run, right? Because we know depression is a disease, right? Anxiety is a disease. We know that there are chemical changes, On the other hand, when we then talk about autonomy, what we're doing is we're talking about things that we have more control over changing. So we can't necessarily always control the chemicals in our brain that we know of, right? And those affect happiness. On the other hand, then there are things we can do, like feeling more autonomy in our jobs and our lives, which probably do improve happiness. I get kind of stuck there, right? Because then I'm asking the question, can we change these things at all, right? So again, we strive towards things like financial independence. We try to be successful. We try to have these great jobs. We try to move up in the world. You know, if it's 100% of a chemical phenomena, does any of that make a difference? Um, Right. And and I don't think you can go all the way to that 100%. You know, mm -hmm. there are some people that feel there is no free will, that our actions (laughs) are predetermined, and that we don't really make choices. It's just an illusion. I think that is a... uh, well, it's more than a stretch. That's a, a bit of a fabrication um, or an oversimplification of you know what we think we know about the brain. Uh, I think we do make choices, and I think that we have uh, you know some 
obviously some autonomy over uh, how we make those choices and, and what factors we consider and and how we live our lives. But uh, again, you could get really philosophical and uh, existential in, in these kind of conversations. <laughs> We are talking to Leif Dahlin. He is the physician on fire. He's an early retired anesthesiologist who is celebrating over four years of early retirement. And we're talking about what makes us happy, whether that is money, success, or career, and why sometimes those things don't solve our problems. Just a reminder that today we are discussing sensitive issues of mental health and suicide. If those are triggering topics to you, you may want to move on to the next episode. Also, if you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please get help. An easy way is to contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just dial or text the number 988. We're going to take a short break. I am Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Leif Dahlin, the physician on fire, who is an early retired anesthesiologist. Leif, it seems like we've been talking about mental health and suicide and whether money makes us happy, but we've mostly been talking about entertainers and sports people This is particularly an issue for people like you and I, doctors. Talk about the problem of physician suicide. So we lose about one physician per day on average or physician in training uh, to suicide. 
And that's a shockingly high number. You know, we we talked about how we look at these celebrities or entertainers, athletes who seem to have it all. But anyone who has become a doctor or is in training is very bright, is typically, uh, you know, someone who is well-respected and loved and has a bright future, right? We, uh, you and I, got to a place of... Uh, a pinnacle of our careers and they never will, you know? And, and so again, it's, it's that, wow, this person has it all, but clearly they don't, or they don't feel that they do. Uh, and it is a shame and it is something that, you know, I'm glad to see there's been a lot more awareness of in recent years. Uh, there are people uh, like Dr. Pamela Weibel, who, has you know, devoted a, you know, basically her, her uh, life to making people more aware of physician suicides and working on preventing them and trying to improve the working conditions that uh, play some role, at least in leading to physicians feeling that they have no way out of their current situation other than to take their own lives, which is never the answer. I feel like the public awareness of physician suicide is fairly low, even though in our circles, we've been talking about it for a long True. time. True. I feel like it's as shocking as seeing what Twitch went through or junior sale or et cetera. Again, I think people look at physicians and say, well, they've got it all. Why would they ever want to hurt themselves? And yet we're seeing that people who from the outside look very successful can be struggling with the same mental health issues is maybe something we expect to see in people who are downtrodden or are unsuccessful. But life circumstances, when it comes to at least quote unquote success or wealth, it seems like that's not necessarily enough to help with some of these more mental health issues. Do you think the people are surprised by how much physician suicide there is when they actually learn about it? Definitely. Yeah. Right. And for the reasons that you've described and uh, I'll, I'll remind people and, and you've said it yourself, but I was an anesthesiologist, uh, not a psychiatrist. So, you know, I, I don't have a ton of personal experience with uh, suicide and depression. And uh, so my, my opinions may not be, uh, you know, the, the uh the most expert by any means but one thing i remember learning as a medical student was that often you will see people who die by suicide do so when starting to recover from depression and you'll have someone who is just has zero motivation right a deep clinical depression can be hard to get out of bed let alone find something that you want to do uh, and find any pleasure or joy from. Uh, but sometimes when people start to see a glimmer of, I don't want to say hope, but when they start being, let's say, treated with medications and maybe have you know, just enough uh, wherewithal to, okay, I'm going to do something today. Well, sometimes they have enough energy and foresight to follow through with a, a lethal plan, which, uh, you know, it's counterintuitive, but I, you know, I believe that that is something that, that does, does happen. And it's also something that can be rather impulsive, you know, particular scenarios that I've, I've heard about and people that I didn't know well, but knew peripherally may have made, and I hate to call it a snap decision and I hate to call it a decision because again, I don't know how much control they they truly have when they're in that that uh state but uh it may not be something that was planned out for months and it might be something if they got through that week it would never be a consideration and it never was the week before you know and, and when you hear those things it's shocking because suicide is a a, a permanent uh permanent thing when it when it uh, leads to death and if you just catch someone at the right time, you might be able to prevent it and they could have decades more to truly enjoy life. 
I realize when I really put my mind to it, I can actually count on two hands the number of physicians I know who've died young and unexpectedly and probably were suicide. And the reason why I say probably is because no one really talks about how or why these happen things happen. So mm-hmm. we had a, a young physician and oncologist who took a bunch of pills and then went swimming in Lake Michigan and drowned. Uh, we had mm-hmm. another young surgeon who got hit by a train in his car. And it was no one ever really talked about what exactly happened, but there was some suspicion that maybe it was on purpose. Um, mm-hmm. We hear these stories. Did you hear these stories during training and during practice? I did. You know, there were some that were very clear suicides. Uh, one of the locum positions I was working, our chief anesthesiologist, who was an amazing guy and extremely well educated and very much liked he ended his life one morning it was very obviously suicide there was another situation where an anesthesiologist who worked with people i knew had apparently overdosed on anesthesia medications and i had also heard peripherally that maybe his life wasn't going as well as as it could have been and so you wonder and and maybe even he didn't know whether he was taking his own life or just using medications to escape for a brief time. But when you're talking about anesthesia medications, uh, you're, you're obviously playing with fire. And was it addiction? Was it suicide? Was it an accident? Uh, no one may ever know. Right. And uh, I think you, you can point to, you know, quite a few of the you know, overdose deaths, especially in my specialty, and not really know if uh, that was an accidental overdose or perhaps intentional. So I want to bring this conversation full circle. We are part of the financial independence, personal finance community, and we spend a lot of time talking about how to get your finances in order to live a better life. And sometimes I wonder, do you think we oversell this idea of wealth and financial independence as if it's a cure-all, that it's going to solve people's problems, and maybe maybe we oversell it to people as we're describing what we're interested in? I suppose so. Uh, the way you ask gets a little bit leading. I mean, how can I say <laughs> no? But uh, <laughs> That's my job, to yeah. lead you into where I want you to yes. go. You have, you have no right, idea that you have right. no control over this conversation at all. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm missing some autonomy well, here. Tell, tell me uh, why I'm wrong, though, then. Like, this, this is, I mean, this is good. Like, tell me why that is a leading question. You know, I look at financial independence as something that can basically afford you whatever it is that you want to do with the rest of your life. And that may or may not be true for everyone. You know, I know a lot of people reach financial independence, but well, I've got kids in school. My wife works and enjoys her job. I'd love to travel the world, but I can't, right? I, again, we keep coming back to autonomy, but you may be in a life situation where, leaving your job doesn't really change all that much except for how you spend your time from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. or whatever hours you might be normally working. And so, no, for most people, it's not going to uh, let them do whatever they want, whenever they want, because there are other life constraints beyond how much money you have that might keep you from doing those things. Yeah, sure. I, I think it can be oversold. I try to be honest and try to be realistic and, uh, I mean, when I quote unquote sell financial independence, I don't get paid. So, <laughs> you know, not, not directly. It's not like you buy it from me. So uh, I don't have, uh, y- you know, a, a strong uh, uh, reason to, to lie and make it look, you know, Instagram perfect when, uh, when we all know that it, it, uh, it isn't, but yeah, sure. I, I think, I think it's oversold in a way. And uh, I just hope that I'm maybe being more, intellectually honest, uh, maybe than, than most. Yeah, there was, and I forget the name. There was a blogger who was around before I came to this community who was very popular and disappeared for a few years and then wrote a blog post, maybe two or three years ago, where he kind of talked Mm. about things hadn't occurred the way he thought they were in early retirement. He ended up getting divorced. He went back to work. 
etc. And it was a very kind of honest look about what this life could look like. Um, do you remember that post? Absolutely. That was uh, Dr. Doom, uh, he calls himself. And uh, the blog, uh, the name of it escapes me, shoot. But yeah, uh, yeah, livingafi, I think it is, dot com, livingafi.com. And I had what read him his stuff from the beginning. He was one of the first uh five bloggers so when i discovered it in 2014 2015 i read a lot of his uh writing and it's very good and you're right he obviously did not have the fairy tale life after Phi that he envisioned and when you read about the issues like you mentioned divorce not seeing eye to eye with his partner uh, and then actually going back to work in some capacity, I believe. Uh, it's clear that there were issues in his pre-fi life. And of course, those don't go away, right? If you had non-monetary problems, whether they're with relationships, uh, you know, maybe you aren't someone who can sit still, you know. I've been accused of that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not going to change. You are who... You are, and uh, you can work on yourself, and you'll have time maybe to develop new hobbies and you know reinvent yourself, quote unquote. But uh, at the end of the day, you're you're still you. You're just you with more money. So, what can we tell people from our experiences to help them deal with this idea that money is helpful? It's a great tool. Getting to financial independence for both you and I has been a wonderful thing, but to also keep in mind this idea that, as you were saying, if you had problems before you had financial independence, those problems aren't going away. Are there some things we can tell people about financial independence that will help them move forward, maybe kind of build wealth into their happiness, but have it not become their happiness? I think going back to the concept of, of doing what you can to enjoy life to the fullest extent that you can at any point in time, uh, whether it's during your schooling, which I, I really enjoyed my life as a college student and even a medical student for the most part, and trying to create that, you know, quote unquote, ideal life uh, before you reach financial independence. And don't just put your nose to the grindstone and tough it out and do everything you can to reach that FI goal as soon as possible. Because it may not change everything. It can change your work situation, but again, you're still you. And so I just think we have to remember that you want to uh, create a life that you don't want to escape from uh, early on. And it doesn't have to be after you've achieved 25 to 30 X your anticipated annual spending and can call yourself financially independent. It kind of reminds me of this idea and what we tell hospice patients is people tend to die like they live. So if you lived a good life, you tend to die a good death. I hate to compare financial independence to hospice, but I think some of it carries over. This idea is if you are building a good life before financial independence, that tends to follow you after financial independence. Obviously, when it comes to mental health, depression, and anxiety, some of it is chemical, right? Some of it mm -hmm. are things we can't control. And therefore, I'm not saying that you can just create happiness, but I do believe you can work towards things like autonomy, things like connection. In my book, I talk about purpose, identity, connections, et cetera, but work towards things that build the kind of life you want to live before you are financially independent so that when you get there, you have those structures in place this has been a difficult conversation, Leif. I wanted to thank you for having it with me. I want to end this conversation the way I end every conversation, which is asking you what is up next in your life and how can people find you if they want to learn more? Up next is the, uh, I think, the blizzard of the century of the week. <laughs> Hopefully that won't be too terribly bad, but we'll we'll be dealing with it here in northern Minnesota and northern Michigan, uh, where I'm spending the holidays and living. Uh, but after that, uh, we're going to do some more downhill skiing. We bought the Indy Pass. My boys and I have enjoyed some skiing already. We'll do a lot more. And we'll be heading off to New Zealand and Australia. I didn't get to do it in 2020, but I do get to do it in 2023. So that's exciting. 
You can always find me at physicianonfire.com. Type in pofire.com. That'll get you there. And I'm pretty active on Twitter, Facebook, etc. So I hope to see you there. Doc G, thank you for inviting me once again on the Earn Invest podcast. It's been a joy. Thank you for coming on. I also one last time wanted to remind everyone, if you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please get help. An easy way is to contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just dial or text the number 988. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Leif Dalin, the physician on fire. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. All right, as you know, I keep things running a little bit. Um, I wanted right to on. thank you for bringing up athletes because I think it broadens the conversation, but it's the same idea, right? So I talked about Twitch in the beginning, and that's because it's right now very much in the zeitgeist. But in a mm. sense, athletes, and I think also physicians and healthcare people too, again, it's this idea of the world looks at all of these people and says, you're living a great life. You should be happy, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the story is a lot more complicated than that. Right. And I think, well, I think a celebrity has additional burdens that, uh, you know, not that you don't have if you're not a celebrity, right? You, you can't just go to the grocery store and buy your groceries in peace, right? You'll be recognized and people will want selfies or autographs or what have you. I guess selfie is the new autograph. And, uh, <laughs> I think it was Jim Carrey that said, you know, if you want to be rich and famous, try just being rich first. See if that's good enough, because you may not want the famous part. Right. Yeah. I mean, Jim Carrey can't go out to a restaurant or be in public without everyone seeing. Oh, what's Jim Carrey? What is he doing? What? Oh, look, at he was at the beach. Oh, look at his belly. Oh, geez. He's kind of let himself. You know, I mean, whereas if you're just rich or, you know, you're a doctor. You can, well, doctor in a small town has a hard time going in public too, you know, without having yeah. awkward conversations about clinical things. I'm sure you've even had that in, in Evanston a number of times as a primary care doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Fame is a yeah. difficult thing. And in fact, you'd almost look at it in doctor speak, it may be a negative prognostic factor when it comes to mental health, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And I think we discount that when we look at successful people, the the burden fame maybe puts on them. Um, mm-hmm. It's just it's hard. I imagine it's a different yeah, it's a different life. I I honestly don't think I would want that. Yeah, it's sometimes better to be successful and anonymous than successful mm-hmm. and well known. Yeah. I, have you? I mean, have you? Being the physician on fire, your blog gets read by millions of people a year. Uh, do you ever ever get that little kind of taste of fame, whether it's at a conference or something where where you feel like where it's almost even would it go as far as being a hassle? It's like, oh, I just wish no one knew who I was here. No, no, that hasn't happened. I have been recognized in odd places like Guanajuato, Mexico, a couple of times by people that are kind of living the, you know, the the digital nomad lifestyle and read the fire blogs and they're like, Oh, Holy shit. You're the position of fire. Oh man. Like, I'm like, I think that's cool as hell. That's but crazy. It's yeah. not like, yeah. But again, it's not like I can't walk into a restaurant without being inundated. There's there, there, um, there are different levels of fame. There's Tom Brady, uh, and, uh, George Clooney level of fame. And then there's, you know, <laughs> there's position on fire of, fame. <laughs> one out of a hundred thousand people might've heard of you. Uh, kind of fame so uh, I appreciate it it's it's fun in tiny doses uh, but uh, there you can overdose just like uh, anesthesia drugs are, are awesome in uh, you know the proper dose and uh, deadly in some cases I also think that yeah. something that we know as physicians that maybe the lay public doesn't realize is how common mental health illness or problems are Like I used to tell my patients when I saw them in the office that probably 20 to 50% of people at some point have had depression or anxiety clinically enough to be treated, maybe even higher. Um, So it's no surprise that 
people that if we look at a spectrum of people who'd be considered by society successful versus people who'd be considered by society is unsuccessful, it's no surprise that we find depression and even suicidality in all those groups because it's just so amazingly common. And again, I think the lay public doesn't maybe realize how much we as physicians see it, even even in anesthesia or primary care or general surgery or whatever you mm-hmm. go into, you are going to come across mental health, mental health illness on a regular basis. Yeah. I think I learned one in seven people at any particular time, you know, it's the, the um, incidence of it. So, but over a lifetime, sure. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, closer to 50% will have experienced a mental health issue. And um, it is, it is quite common. And yeah, you do see it even in anesthesia, you go to interview someone, before their surgery, you ask them questions. They don't make eye contact. They have yeah. short answers, uh, and yeah, I mean it's 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 there. It's it's something you can you can pick up on you know, if you're paying attention. Uh, but it's not something that I was ever in a position to treat, unless the uh, ketamine that I you know gave occasionally had <laughs> gave- any impact <laughs> on their long term depression. Which you know that's a whole other uh, interesting area of medicine where the psychedelics yeah. people with yeah. psychedelics. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's psilocybin and, um, and yeah, and ketamine too. It, it's pretty amazing. People that have failed electroconvulsive therapy have improved on ketamine infusions. So I don't know. There's something there. Isn't that funny? One, one last aside that has nothing to do with anything, but electroconvulsive therapy, something that has been panned in media and, movies and cinema forever is actually yeah. incredibly effective. <laughs> like yes, yeah, people are incredibly shocked. effective <laughs> for resist shocked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shocked to know that it, it still happens and it still for incredibly works. Incredibly resistant uh, depressive people. Un, yeah. Unintended. But <laughs> in in my last job, we we did ECTs three times a week. Um and we would intubate them briefly and well mask them usually. Uh, not intubate, but uh we you know put them under general anesthesia. And breathe for them for a few minutes. They got their shock when they were completely out and they woke up. And uh, yeah, I mean, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. We had a, we had a routine. Still happening and still effective for people who've tried multiple meds and aren't getting better. So, yeah. Yeah. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 